This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I, oh, I, speaking of jokes that we can't put on there, I was watching, <laughs> I was watching Reno 911 earlier. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the Speedster, whose articles series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan. Hey, Joey, do you know why you never see elephants hiding in trees? I do not. Why? Because they're really good at hiding. <laughs> it's just simple. You've moved from dad jokes <laughs> to anti-jokes. That's amazing. I, that's, that's really, um, isn't, that is unironically wonderful. Isn't a dad joke essentially an anti-joke at its heart, though? That is a philosophical question for the ages. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. In the color pie of life. My slice is green apple. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at EDHREC.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? Challenge of stats. <laughs> the episode. There we go. I like that. That's a good way to phrase it. I suppose, yeah. We wanted to talk today about the times that you should not play the really, really popular Commander Staples. I'm kind of looking forward to this, given Matt's anti-humor intro and my kind of strange Dadaism aside. I'm curious where this whole show is going to go. It is a pretty peculiar topic, and I think right out the gate we should announce that these are cards that should see play a 99.9% of of commander decks like they're staples for a reason but occasionally times do come up when maybe the cards that everyone is running don't necessarily belong in the deck that you're playing yeah because there's i mean i don't think that there's very many cards that are true auto includes in every deck you build i think you you need yeah. to understand why that is so i think we want to talk about that yeah, exactly. You need to be intentional about every decision that you're making when you're both playing the game and building your deck, which means that you can't just 
you know, sort of get on autopilot while you're deck building. There are some cards that are definitely auto-includes in a lot of places, but you want to make sure that you're also checking to make sure that you're not just on autopilot with those auto-inclusions as well. Before we get started, though, have you guys acquired any new fun cards or played any fun games recently? I haven't acquired any new fun cards except for I was looking tonight... um... I do have a, a, a foil deck that's running a foil um, towards the plowshares, and I'm like, it, but it's the from the Vault 21. I was like, ah, I should look and see if there's a cool version of towards the plowshares and upgrade that one. And there is an FNM foil of the original art towards the plowshares, and it's like $120. I'm like, ah, you know what? <laughs> I think that uh, $2 FTV foil will be just fine for now. Ew. Your your love of foils doesn't carry to the super hyper ridiculously expensive cards, Dan. I mean, maybe at some point it's the that, that's a long term. That, that's not a snap impulse. Like, oh, I'm bored. I want to upgrade one card in one deck. If it had been like a twenty five dollar card, I might have done it, but not at one twenty five. That's that's beyond impulse purchase for me. I mean, in my opinion, twenty five dollars is also beyond impulse purchase. But you are the person <laughs> obsessed with shiny cards. Yes, indeed. Honestly, I'm just ashamed that Dana bought a from the vault foil of all cards because those are disgusting. They are ugly. It was cheap. It was the cheap uh, foil for the deck. I'm like, at some point I will upgrade it, and it, there's not a great upgrade out there unless I want to blow $125. <laughs> so, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Quit, quit well, being a peasant. That's all. Right. I can say. Right. Right. I do. Uh, I did recently play some games and man, I had some doozies. So I hope that you won't mind if I share some stories with you guys right now because they were so much fun. I was playing my Canaeus and Tiro group hug deck just a short while ago and a really interesting final situation happened when I was trying to close out the game. The game's been going on for a while and I've gotten it down to just me and one other player. He's playing Xenagos, God of Revels, so he's got a bunch of really big creatures in play. But I've finagled it, in my opinion, I think it did a pretty uh, wise job of all of this, making sure that he has a bunch of creatures, which he then swings all out at me to try and, you know, kill me. But I have a selfless squire in hand. For those who may not remember, Selfless Squire, when it enters the battlefield, you'll prevent all damage dealt to you that turn, and whenever damage is prevented to you, it gets that much bigger. So when he's attacking me for like 50 or something, my Selfless Squire comes in and becomes a 51-51. Since he's all tapped out, I'll be able to swing next turn with my Selfless Squire and take him out. Well, that's the plan, and since he's got no chump blockers, you know, it should be really good, but when I go to swing... My opponent casts Chaos Warp on my Squire. Not very good, but I have prepared for this type of situation because I have a Counterspell in hand. The problem is that the Counterspell is Swan Song, so when I counter his instant, he gets a little bird token, which could therefore block. This is my final win con. I can't afford for him to block. If he's allowed to play on his next turn, I've got nothing left and he'll definitely take me out. So after the Swan Song resolves and he gets a bird, I have to then Chaos Warp the bird that I just gave him which was another really big, really big risk. Thankfully, it worked out and he'd flipped over a land and so he didn't get anything meaningful to get in the way of my selfless squire. But oof, that was that was a very tense couple of seconds as he was shuffling his library, looking me dead in the eyes to see if he would get a creature, which as a Xenagos deck he is likely to do, to be able to block my final win condition. I just felt like that was kind of a, an interesting story because we've talked before about Swansong and how giving someone that bird blocker can actually be a really big moment. And in this case it was, and I honestly think that I only got lucky to win that game. Yeah, that, that's a lot of resource investment there that you have to do, and you basically have to win at that point because not only, like you said, not only do you have to worry about the crackback 
you have then probably emptied so many resources out of your hand at that point that you're you're you've just gone all in completely gone all in yeah and that tends to be the way that it works with that particular group hug deck like i have to figure out what my one win condition will be against whichever opponent is now remaining so that was a pretty risky one that wasn't the most fun game i think that i played though that was really fun i've got one more story that i'd like to share with you guys that i had i had just a ton of fun with this one I was playing against a Gonti player. Again, it was just me versus that player at this point. And that Gonti player, as Gonti players like to do, likes to take stuff, including taking my turn. He casts Cruel and uh, cruel Ultimatum. No, Cruel Entertainment, excuse me. The one that forces two players to swap turns. He will control mine and I will control his turn. And honestly, I should have known that this was coming. He had revealed it early on in the game through some type of weird tutor or draw effect of some kind. So I should have seen this one coming, but it annihilated me completely because I had nine life. And on my turn, my Phyrexian Arena dropped me from one life to eight life. And since I was playing a deck that likes a lot of creatures, I also had a Phyrexian Reclamation in play, which allows me to pay two mana and two life to return a creature from my graveyard to my hand. And the game has gone long. I've got like 10 creatures in my graveyard. So then when he takes my turn, he's able to just pay two life and and two mana, pay two life and two mana, pay two life and two mana, pay two life and two mana. I've got an even amount of life, so he's easily just going to... I was dead on my own board, and it just... It was awesome, but it sucked. But it was awesome, <laughs> but it sucked. That's a rough way to go. <laughs> the irony of it was that I had a Swords to Plowshares in hand, which I could have used to exile one of my own creatures to gain maybe enough life to get out of range of it, but all my creatures had either two or four power. So I still had an even amount of life that would allow him to pay the two life for the Phyrexian Reclamation. So I couldn't get out of the range of it. I didn't even have a big enough creature to get out of the range of how much mana I had for him to pay for it. Just, I died on my own blade. I was hoisted by my own petard in such an excellent way. So it just sort of goes to show how powerful it can be when someone takes your stuff, including control of your brain. Yeah, you will lose that exchange more often than not, <laughs> for sure. And I can't be mad about it. It's one of those 75% theories, like the stuff right. that the Gonti player did was only as strong as what I was able to do. And it turns out what I was able to do was annihilate myself. All right. Well, those were just some fun games. I'm glad that you guys let me uh, share them with you, both the times that I was able to win and also the times that I was able to annihilate myself. But let's move on now to that main topic, the times that you should not play staples. And again, I want to reiterate because this is probably a pretty contentious idea for a show topic, that these are cards that show up in a lot of decks, and they should. They should show up in like 99.9% .9 of decks, but we want to talk about that 0.1%, where sometimes you don't want to play the cards that are ever, ever popular. Matt, do you mind starting us off? What is the first card on our list here? So the first card on our list is the most played card in the format, as in Soul Ring. What do you guys think? Soul Ring. So the data says that it is the most popular card in the format. It is the most stapliest of staples. Yeah, and certainly well-deserved. I mean, there's a reason they put it into every pre-con, but there are occasionally times where maybe we don't want to play Soul Ring. I know that's a weird thing to say, but what are some situations where maybe Soul Ring could, you know, not be as useful as it should be? I mean, I have, I don't have Soul Ring in two decks actively right now. It's not because I don't have soul rings. I've chosen to not run it. Um, so I can speak with a little bit of experience about this. Um, now, one of those is a little bit just obstinance on my part. It's my Enchantress deck where I'm running no artifacts. 
So it's not in that deck for that reason. There's a good amount of artifact hate in there. That's just kind of um, all around universal artifact hate. So none of it ever hits me if I'm running no artifacts. And I'm just I just want to have no artifacts in that deck. So that's would the deck be better with Soul Ring? Yes, probably. But the one other one I would say is my Edric Spymaster of Tress deck doesn't have a Soul Ring in it, and that's because there's just so few things that use colorless mana. Almost all of my creatures are one drops. I don't want to spend turn one playing a soul ring that's then not going to be any use on turn two for my creatures that are all, you know, one color mana as well. So short of like, you know, turn six or something when I'm trying to kill somebody with Triumph for the Hordes or something along those lines, maybe casting a time warp, there's just no use for colorless mana at all in the deck. So there's there was enough times in experience from me actually playing it that it wasn't a useful card. I think I wound up replacing it with Lotus Petal. Yeah, and again, like it definitely sounds like the type of thing, well, Soul Ring is always going to be useful. Say that you need to recast Edric, for example. It gives you the supply of commander tax right there in the card. So there's still probably an excuse to run it there, but as you mentioned, you're playing a bunch of tiny creatures that are only like one mana that are unblockable to trigger Edric's effects that you draw a bunch of cards when you hit people, and you can't cast any of them with that extra colorless mana, so it does sometimes get in the way. That's one of the reasons why people will often choose to play a mana rock that provides a color as opposed to something like a Mindstone, which only provides colorless. That's also sort of a similar theory. Yeah, yeah, I think, I'm sure there's, there's probably some other decks like I have some friends that play one v one commander pretty consistently, and one of my buddies runs a Zergo Bellringer a mono red aggro deck, and he doesn't run Soul Ring in there, I believe, for the same reason because he just has so few of his spells require any mana that's colorless at all. And if things get to the point in the game where he has to recast his commander, he's already lost. It doesn't matter if he has to recast Zergo and worry about the commander tax, the game's over at that point. So it's not a it's just not a useful card in his deck either. So I think really, really aggressive aggro decks in some cases don't want it. Yeah, and that's... Uh, I don't know if that would have occurred to me, but that is definitely a take. An example that comes to my mind, actually, of a deck that also might not be able to make use of the colorless banner could be Animar Soul of the Elements, because he reduces all of the costs of your creature spells by their colorless costs, and a well-oiled Animar deck might reduce them so much that you're not going to need the colorless mana at all, and instead what you need are the colored sources like blue and green and red to actually play the creatures in your hand. Or in some cases, you're casting Eldrazi or something, so you just will get a bunch of free creatures, or you're playing a morph Animar deck, so you'll be able to cast free creatures all the time anyway. So the colored sources are so much more important in that particular one. So that's another possible example, and actually something that's come to mind, it's something that has come up in my own experience playing with landfall decks. Sometimes I've given the side eye to Soul Ring a little bit, because what I would prefer to have in a few moments is another land, so that I could get another landfall trigger, and getting the land as a resource, because I can play so many lands with my landfall deck, having the artifact there occasionally feels like it gets in the way, so that could also be another place. If you're playing something like uh, Omnath or Mina and Den, for example, maybe a Soul Ring might also be less favorable in those instances too. Most of the time, you're probably going to be fine with the Soul Ring, but it could certainly be the case that occasionally a Soul Ring gets in the way because what you want is a different mana-providing resource instead. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, and if if somebody told me that like 99.8% of decks were better off with the Soul Ring, 
I would believe that. I don't know how you would quantify that, but like that would make sense to me. I, I would completely understand that if you told me that was a stat somehow, I would buy it. Um, but that's not 100%. Like there, there's still a few decks where I think it logically isn't an auto, auto run. What do you guys think about Soul Ring in four color and five color decks? I really don't like it. Uh, really? Yeah, I, I think in that spot you would rather have mana fixing. And, and we've talked about this several times over and over and over again, how you probably, people need to pay more attention to the color pips that they need in order to cast all their stuff. And especially when you get to four and five color decks, the more colors that you run, the more double mana cost. Uh, we talked about it in our Najila episode, how you have double white on turn three, double black on turn four, double green later on. Soul Ring isn't really going to help you in that effect. Uh, it, what Soul Ring essentially becomes is you have a ritual that turns one colored mana into two colorless mana. And when you're color hungry, that's not really an effect that you want. Uh, in that instance, you're almost better with a, a Cold Steel Heart or a Chromatic Lantern or anything else to help fix your mana colors, not just to get you a, a mass quantity of mana. I would push back a little bit on it. I don't think the color, the amount of colors in your deck really matters about whether or not Soul Ring's good. I think it's just such a great card in general that the that in, if you're in a five color deck, I don't. I think that generally speaking, you're going to have enough cards in that deck that care about colorless mana that it's worth running. Now, that's not to say there isn't some really specific five color deck running a ton of one drops that, that doesn't qualify. But I think the amount of colors for the most part, isn't really relevant because I think whether or not it's a five-color deck or a one-color deck, most of the time you're running enough, like Matt just mentioned, the Cold Steel Heart, you're running enough of those cards anyway that can benefit from a Soul Ring, or you're running enough creatures that are one and two colorless, or you know two mana and then two colorless, or, or what have you. I think most of the time, regardless of your color spread, you just can still use a Soul Ring in addition to all the things to fix. I think I probably side with Dana a little bit more here, but I do agree that color fixing does need to take up a much bigger percentage of the type of ramp that you're playing when you expand to a bunch more colors. And Soul Ring can be a bit of an odd duck in that scenario. So, you know, it's nice to know that there's like a slight tempering on Soul Ring's power in those particular situations, but it's still really amazing. And the ability just to be able to get the free commander tax whenever you need to recast it in those situations, I think is especially what makes it worthwhile. The only example that I can think of right off the top of my head that maybe doesn't necessarily want Soul Ring because it's a very you'd prefer to have color fixing or something, might be something like Child of Alara. That needs a very demanding mana base, and Child of Alara's own ability is frequently going to be destroying everything in play, so the Soul Ring probably wouldn't stick around for too long anyway. So you'd probably prefer to have more of the green bend that actually finds you lands instead of artifacts that will fix your stuff. But again, that's still kind of a maybe. Yeah, I think the, the multicolors four or five colors hits the other colorless mana rate-making rocks. I think it makes things like Worn Power Stone or Thran Dynamo way less relevant. But I still think just the efficiency of Soul Ring kind of fights through that the vast majority of the time. So we also asked Don Miner, the guy who created EDH Rec, if he could give us the data on the commanders that are playing the Soul Ring the least often, and we found that pretty interesting. There is a bit of detail that we have to parse through, though, because it is a little wonky when we look at the back end of this data. So for example, when we tell you that Marhalt Dragon is playing Soul Ring the least amount in 
17% of decks, and you say, who or what is a Marhalt Dragon? that's the correct response. Basically, no one is actually playing that commander. It's very, very old, and barely anyone knows who it is. And there's a whole bunch of examples like that on the list. Barktooth, Warbeard, and Casimir the Lone Wolf, and Sir Chandler of Eberin. Like, these are all commanders that aren't playing Soul Ring at a very high percentage, but they're also not being played a whole lot at all. When we parse through all of those types of weird examples, though, we do get some pretty interesting data. So for example, Zergo Bellstriker is probably the most viable or at least the most well-known among all of the commanders that we're seeing at the low end here, and that is the one mana 2-2 from Dragons of Tarkir that is sort of a weird orc coward creature. It's pretty weird, but it's just a one mana 2-2, and he's only playing Soul Ring in 19% of his 275 decks so far. That's a pretty weird one, I'd have to say, but he is right now probably what I would consider one of our best candidates for commanders that aren't playing Soul Ring at a very high clip. Why do you guys think that is, though? I mean, I, I touched on it before with my friend's 1v1 deck, but number one, he's a single red pip to cast, so the Soul Ring does you no good. Number one, you're probably not casting on turn one because you want to use that red mana to cast Zergo, and it doesn't help you cast a Zergo, and I would bet in a lot of cases... It's running really aggressive, hasty, one-drop red creatures. So that card may well be a dead card in hand for the first five or six turns of that game. And the deck probably isn't looking to play beyond those five or six turns. I don't think there's a whole lot of Zirko Bellstriker decks out there that are looking to play 15-turn casual Battlecruiser Magic. That's definitely a really tight aggro list the vast majority of the time at which point Soul Ring just isn't doing you any good when you're trying to drop your commander followed by a goblin war driver followed by something, you know, something along those lines. That makes a whole lot of sense, especially the 1v1 thing. And that's always something that we have to keep in mind whenever we're looking through any commander on EDHREC to make sure that we remember that sometimes EDHREC will pull data from websites where people have put up a list for the purposes of 1v1 commander, which is why Soul Ring isn't already in like 100% of the lists online in the first place. There is a percentage of decks that we're scraping that is just of 1v1 lists where Soul Ring is not allowed. So that's a great observation. Another few that uh, we'll jump up here, for example, Seton Crozen Protector. This is a really weird Centaur Druid guy. He's green, green, green for a 2-2 to tap an untapped Druid you control and add green to your mana pool. He is probably next in line, considering all of these commanders that we're looking at here, to be playing Soul Ring the least often because it only shows up in 28% of his decks. That one, I mean, just the triple green and its mana cost alone probably discourages people a fair amount from playing Soul Ring. And... I mean, it, it, it mentions a creature type making colored mana. So basically, Seton turns everything into a mana dork, especially if you're playing, you know, Druid Tribal. So when you get to that point, you're probably playing a bunch of Elvish Mystics and Land of War Elves and just one mana Druids. So all your creatures are automatically becoming mana ramp, and you're probably playing mono green, which means you ramp really well too. So Soul Ring, probably just the impetus to play Soul Ring and get that mass quantity. It's probably not that hard to do because you have all the other ramp options in addition to your commander turning everything basically into a cryptolith right creature. Um, I, I could see why Seton doesn't need a soul ring. Yeah, I, I feel like that one might also be a bit of an obstinate pick, a bit like my Enchantress deck where I'm not running it though, because like just looking through the list of the the signature cards and the top cards in a Seton deck, there's a lot of you know one or two colorless mana or more in those casting costs and 
it's not like you're playing blue where you have access to counter spells. I think people are probably going to remove Seton plenty, so you're going to be stuck trying to hard cast a lot of these guys. I, I, I mean, I get why people might not run it, and I think I hear the argument, but I'm not sure if I buy it. I think you still probably want to have Sol Ring in your deck because you're not casting your commander on turn one, and you know you can cast Atlanta or Elves, I guess. But I think there's plenty of times you still want to drop it on turn two or two, turn four so you can more easily bounce back from someone killing your commander. I mean, I, I see the argument, but I don't, I'm not sure it really holds as much water necessarily for Seton as it maybe does for Zergo. So here are two more examples. Uh, before we move on to our next card, there are two more examples of commanders that are not playing Soul Ring very much. These are going to be Nikia of the Old Ways and Sasaya Orochi Ascendant. Nikia of the Old Ways really stuck out to me. In fact, both of these stuck out to me because there are at least 200 decks on EDH rec for these commanders, but they have some weird restrictions that might explain why they're only playing Soul Ring at about 33% of a clip or so. Nikia specifically prevents you from casting non-creature spells. So what do you think about not running Soul Ring in her particular deck? Because if you draw it while she's already in play, she wouldn't actually be able to cast it. Plus, she already doubles your lands generally anyway. I could see why. I'm going to take the Dana stance here. I think you don't always want to plan around having your commander in play. And I think Nikia, I think Nikia probably should be playing Soul Ring a little bit more. Um, Sasia only doubles your lands. Correct? I, I'm drawing a blank on what? Uh, yeah, so, so Sasaya Orochi yeah. Ascendant, that is a Kamigawa flip commander, so it's one green green for a 2-3, and it has an activated ability, reveal your hand, if you have seven or more land cards in your hand, you flip it into Sasaya's Essence, which says whenever a land you control is tapped for mana, you add one mana of that type to your mana pool for each other land you control with the same name. So that, I think the argument is there, that you actually want to have as many lands as possible in the deck so that you can activate her very first ability and then the more forests that you have once it has turned into Sasaya's essence the more mana that they're going to provide you then soul ring is capable of yeah but even then i think it's the same kind of thing where i think you're just kind of being stubborn you need to get those lands in your hand in the first place unless you're running 75 lands in your deck and really don't want soul ring to interfere all the spells you want to cast to put lands in your hand the vast majority of them anyway have colorless mana in their mana costs i just think the amount of times you want it far probably outweighs the amount of times you don't. Interesting. I feel like I think the data is correct in both of those cases. Nikia may be a little less so once you have a soul ring in play. Nikia may not mind. And you're totally right to mention, Matt, that we shouldn't rely on having our commander in play. But Sasaya does make a bit more sense to me. That's one of those cases, like with a landfall deck, where I feel as though I should have more lands and this little artifact might get in my way just a little bit. Plus the forest, if I have many forests in play, is going to be able to add a bunch more mana to my mana pool later on in the game. But the mere fact of this isn't to say that one is categorically correct. The point is that we're having a debate about whether these decks should be playing Soul Ring. That is interesting because it's almost never a debate to have whether you should put Soul Ring into your deck at all. Yeah, I mean, I would wager on average, most of the decks that aren't running Soul Ring probably still should be running it. Like, I, I don't think every deck should have it, but I think a lot of decks that even are trying to act like they don't need it probably are, would, be, would be mathematically better off with it. But I don't think it goes in every single deck either. 
All right, so yeah, that's a pretty tough one. Solvering is probably the biggest bite when it comes to staples, but there are a few other things that we've noted down here that might be easier to find specific exceptions for. So how about we move on to one of those? Matt, what's next on our list? So the next card on the list is Lightning Greaves. A card. Why would you not play Lightning Greaves? It's a card that's way easier to cast if you've got a Sol Ring in play. <laughs> oh my you can, goodness. You can cast Lightning Greaves turn one off of a turn one Sol Ring. There we go. So, so let me give you guys the stats on soul on not soul ring lightning greaves real quick. It's two mana for equipment. Equipped creature has haste and shroud. It equips for zero. It is currently in thirty three percent of three hundred eight thousand hundred fifty seven decks. I mean, that seems low to be perfectly honest, because we all talk about lightning greaves like it's a staple that goes in every deck. What are the situations where you wouldn't need a lightning greaves? I think if your commander has. X-proof built in, you're probably much less likely to care about it. And I think, especially if you're in a Voltron deck with a, with, with any, without a ridiculously high creature count, so you can consistently move it off your commander if you need to, I think it's really, really risky. And I've seen multiple people get burned by Lightning Greaves before in a Voltron deck, or even a deck that just has a lot of equipment. I've seen people absolutely get burned by it. So I think there's a lot more situations where maybe Greaves isn't your ideal run for protection equipment in a deck, for sure. Yeah, the Hexproof is sort of a gimme, you know, when Sagarda or Lazav has Hexproof. Obviously, you're not going to need another form of protection, but you're totally right. I've tried my hand at a few Voltron decks, and I've certainly played against plenty of them before, where the Lightning Greaves is getting in the way of the person adding more stuff to their commander to be able to hit us more powerfully. And... (laughs) While it's definitely necessary to make sure that you get Shroud or Hexproof or some type of protection for your commander so that your ultra-important Voltron can continue to beat people to death rather than getting removed instantly, yeah, Lightning Greaves can sometimes be your own impediment too. I mean, I, I wonder what the percentage of novice EDH players is that learned for the first time that you can't just unequip equipment. It has to go on to something else. I wonder how many learned that lesson <laughs> from Lightning Greaves. I definitely learned that the hard way. I totally thought you could just equip and unequip if you just pay the mana cost. So when I, I finally got that Rude Awakening, I was like, well, this card's dumb. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't think <laughs> it happened to me, but I think I realized for the first time in a game when it happened to somebody else that I was like, oh, really? You can't just, oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, I, no, yeah. I, absolutely. I, I've seen that happen a lot. Yeah, and it is actually kind of intuitive. I agree that it makes sense in your brain that if your creature put on shoes, it should be able to take them off as well. So it is kind of a weird thing there. But yeah, that is the case. You can't get rid of the Lightning Greaves and sometimes it gets in your own way. And that can kind of blow when you're playing a Voltron deck. They're protected, but they're also not doing as much as you know that they could based off of the awesome enchantments or other equipment that are in your hand. Now, one thing I think we should probably note here, and it probably would have made sense to say it before, but I think I'll say it now. Lightning Greaves is not a cheap card. It's it's almost always, regardless of how many times it's been reprinted, it's almost always over six bucks, if not more. And even Soul Ring, despite being in every single pre-con ever, is consistently a two-dollar card. And it comes it comes out of those those pre-cons so infrequently that it's entirely possible some of the decks that aren't running these either are ones that just you know can't afford a lightning greaves, or someone's built a deck and they just don't have a spare soul ring lying around because it's not a pre-con deck, and they just aren't floating around there that frequently because they're in so many decks. 
Yeah, that that's definitely also the case. And you're also kind of bringing up a good point about just like budget. It's yeah. always perfectly acceptable to play within your own budget. So if you're not running staples for that reason, then good on you. You're playing within your means, and that's correct. You've I think people should play. People should play demonic tutor no matter what. Like I don't care if it's a forty dollar card. Like <laughs> you're wrong for not playing. I can't. You've decided I to can't go even... with the FTV sort of supply shares. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Should go for the $125 foil version for Dana. Exactly. Screw your rent money. Screw groceries. You need to have these staples to play the game. <sighs> Obviously not. That, we're tempting or tiptoeing around a rabbit hole that we can go down, and I think we need to move on from this one. <laughs> All right. There's one more thing that I want to mention about Lightning Greaves. And of course, by extension, Swiftfoot Boots. You probably don't need those if your commander is a planeswalker as well. There what? are certainly times. That's crazy talk. <laughs> Get out of here with that nonsense. There are certainly times where it is useful because you can haste up one of the creatures that you get, but generally the function of those isn't the haste. The function of them is the protection, and if you can't equip your commander, then you probably don't need those cards. So that's another place, obviously, where there would be an exception to Lightning Greaves as well. But you're right. We should move on to the next card on our list. I'll I'll throw one quick more example out here for this, Joey. My crash deck that I just built is not running Lightning Greaves because so many of the fling type spells are targeted. So even though, really? so even though it's not a Voltron deck, I can't fling crash if he's wearing Lightning Greaves. All right, that makes a bunch of sense, and I really appreciate you ruining my segue. Thank you. <laughs> As penance, can you please tell us about the next card on the list? The next cards on the list are ones that I've written about before: Evolving Wilds and Terramorphic Expanse. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, this particular show topic was kind of inspired by In the Margins, the series uh, that you wrote. Thanks, man. Well, I mean, if we get a bunch of flack for this episode, we're going to blame you, is what that really I means. I think we should blame Dana anyways. <laughs> I love it. So why wouldn't you run Evolving Wilds and Terramorphic Expanse, mister? I've written about this topic before. Because you're playing EDH. <laughs> no, I, so, so this, this is the absolute, I'm glad we mentioned budget, because this is the perfect one. These are absolutely good budget cards to run, particularly if you're in a three or more color deck because they will fix whatever color you need. They're ubiquitous. You can probably walk into any shop after FNM and find one of those cards lying in the draft shaft afterwards if you need one for a deck. Or probably just ask any local game shop owner, hey, can I have a free Evolving Wilds? And I'll probably give you three. So if you are <laughs> on a budget, it's absolutely a way to fix, and I completely get it. If you're not on a budget and you have any kind of decent sized collection at all, I don't think they're good enough to run. So the lens that I particularly like to look through it, like I was running these cards, Evolving Wilds and Terramorphic Expanse, I was running them in a bunch of two color decks until I read your article. And I was like, wait a second, the math doesn't exactly check out here. I could put them into a two color deck and that would be fine. But I could also run like a guild gate. And in both instances, I'll get a tapped land. But the guild gate will actually provide me both colors that I need at any time in the future. Whereas the evolving wilds will only give me one of the colors that I need in the future. And that's not as great. And we've also talked before about how deck thinning isn't necessarily what you need to do. I mean, we're not running these cards in a monocolored deck at all because deck thinning is just not important enough. So yeah, I'd rather have the two color land. And I would say most of the time, even in a three-color deck, you probably have enough options. Exotic Orchard is dirt cheap. You know, City of Brass and Mana Confluence aren't nothing, but but there's enough lands that get you there. Even in a three-color deck, I just don't know if the tempo hit is worth it. 
Um, but if you're on a budget, four and five color decks, they absolutely make sense. And I will admit I'm running both of them in my Mina and Den Landfall deck just because the deck doesn't, I don't want to spend the money on an Arid Mesa and a, you know, I, I forget right. what the other off-color fetches are I don't have in the deck, but like that particular deck isn't the kind of power level deck that it's worth buying $100 off-color fetches for. So I'm just running those two and it mostly gets the job done for Landfall stuff as, as well as I want to get it done in that deck. Hey, I'm Nolan Sykes, a host of Past Gas, the number one automotive podcast in the world. Every week, my co-hosts, James Pumphrey, Joe Weber, and I bring you some of our favorite stories from the hollowed halls of car history. From the amazing to the weird to the utterly unforgettable moments, we cover it all. Join us as we take a look at the wild stories and larger-than-life characters behind legendary cars and car makers. So if you love cars or just like a good story, check out Past Gas by Donut Media, the number one automotive podcast in the world. So you mentioned you don't like the tempo hit. Would you play things like, for example, Guildgates or Scrylands, things that provide you two colors of mana in a three-color deck, but they enter the battlefield tapped? Or is that generally a thing that you personally like to try and avoid? If I can avoid it, I'll avoid it. I think we are living in a golden age of dual lands right now. We've gotten so many new ones and so many things that, like like the the filter lands from Lorwyn have been reprinted recently and they're relatively inexpensive and we've gotten enough reprints of the pain lands and the check lands and we've gotten new cycles, whether it's the battle lands from Zendikar or the battle bond lands or the cyclers from Amonkhet. Like we, there's just so many options for dual lands that, and, and they're not nothing, but like a lot of them are, you know, two bucks as well. That's relatively easy to pick up if you skip your Starbucks trip that week. I think for the most part, even in a three color deck, you can just get away with some relatively inexpensive dual lands to get the job done. Interesting. Matt, what do you think? I think Dana's, he's got a pretty good point. I mean, there's stuff like Dragon Skull Summit and all these cheap dual lands that, I mean, for a long time, you could get stuff like Sun Petal Grow for two bucks, same price as a Soul Ring. So mana fixing, there's so much out there and everybody talks about how good the Battle Bond lands are and how much, you know, every set we seem to have a new or at least a reprint of a really good cycle of dual lands whether it's dominaria giving us the uh the innistrad duels it's tricky I, I i won't ever blame somebody like we have said for budget concerns or for specific decks there's always going to be exceptions to every rule that we say here if you're trying to get a landfall deck then evolving wilds terramorphic expanse those are fine they're defensible but i do agree that they're they're generally a little slow but i'm maybe not as harsh on them as most people but yeah if you're doing it for mana fixing I think there's so many dual lands out there. It's it's not hard to just dig through stuff and and find maybe a couple lands that you need. And, and you know, we can talk about yeah. the buddy lands being like three bucks a piece and the filters only being like five dollars now, but that does add up in in a three color deck if you're st- if you're needing to run twenty duels, you know, at three bucks a piece, that's sixty bucks right there. And it's oftentimes not three dollars. It's oftentimes like five or six dollars. It's pretty easy to throw a hundred dollars in a in a quote unquote budget mana base. And that's not budget for a lot of people. So I completely get it that people run them even in those color decks when they can't get those, those quote unquote budget lands because that's not in their budget. I, I get it. 
Right. And that's why the thing that I particularly want to focus on, at least for me, I do think I disagree with you about the three color uh, situation, but for the two color especially, what I appreciated most about the article that you wrote so very many ages ago was the the two color situation. I had just always assumed that Terramorphic Expansion Evolving Wilds were staples that I needed to play in any deck that was more than one color. But I would rather have a Guildgate in a two color deck because it will give me either of the colors that I need. And that's really an important thing to focus on there because there is a super budget replacement that is going to be better. Obviously, if you're playing a landfall deck, you should go right ahead and play things that give you multiple landfall effects. Those are awesome. But in most cases, I don't have a two color landfall deck. I've got something like Lazov and he could just make better use of a Demir Guildgate than of a Terramorphic Expanse. So that was just an interesting thing that kind of took me out of my autopilot. And that's basically what we're trying to do for this episode. So it's something that we wanted to reiterate here. I think it's time for us to move on to something that's a bit more controversial. This is one that I added to the list. It's the card Cyclonic Rift. Everyone knows what this amazing blue spell does. It's phenomenal. But hear me out, I do think that there are occasions where you maybe shouldn't play Cyclonic Rift. And it's not necessarily just because of budget, and it's not necessarily just because you think it's overplayed. I think that Cyclonic Rift doesn't necessarily belong in decks that make use of Cascade. So particularly what I'm looking at here is Yidris, Maelstrom Wielder, and Maelstrom Wanderer. Maelstrom Wanderer cascades twice when it enters the battlefield. Well, I suppose actually technically when you cast it, and that's a really great effect to get a bunch of free value, but you'd only be able to cascade into the regular version of Cyclonic Rift and not the overloaded version. And casting just a simple unsummon doesn't feel that great. Similarly, Yidris Maelstrom Wanderer, excuse me, Yidris Maelstrom Wielder, these guys are very similar, uh, when he cascades into a bunch of stuff, he would hit that, and again, you'd only get the one version. You can't overload the thing that you cascade into. When I was trying out a Yidris deck, I personally felt like Cyclonic Rift kind of got in my way. Particularly with the speed of that deck, I never got up to enough mana to overload it in the first place. And while it's definitely nice to eventually draw it and have that option, generally what I want to do is cascade as much as possible, and that card actually kind of gave me a bit of a tempo hit. What do you guys think about Cyclonic Rift? Do you think that that's an exception to the rule of always play Cyclonic Rift? I think that's a very, very narrow corner case, and I don't buy it. I think that card is still powerful enough that... I mean, chances are, yes, there's going to be times that you fail and you cascade into it and it's not the greatest, but I think those, those instances are going to be few and far between. I think the card, I think the, the biggest defense of not playing Cyclonic Rift is probably from a fun standpoint than it is a functional standpoint. Like, I, I can't count the times, and I'm sure everybody has a few stories of, oh, well, he just did this, did this, and then he Cyclonic Rifted and won. It's not terribly exciting. It's a very powerful card, but I, it's not fun. It's not terribly interactive. Uh, it just sweeps everything up in mono blue, and then you go... If you don't win the game right after, you're probably doing it wrong too, but even then, it's, it's such a powerful card. It clears the way for practically everything. It's hard to defend not playing Cyclonic Rift if you're going from a functional point of view. Yeah, I think there's three cards on this list, maybe four that I think are in Soul Ring's category where you really have to make a strong, strong case and not run them. And I think Rift is the second one we've talked about after Ring. I, I don't think you're making that up, Joey. I believe you, but I'd have to see it firsthand because I'd still feel like in that deck, I still have enough situations where I want to draw Cyclonic Rift and I'm willing to have it not work off of the uh, cascade because it's so powerful the times you do happen to have it in hand and have the mana free. 
All right, fair enough. And again, that's sort of the point of the episode yeah. is to talk about which corner cases do exist. Your opinion's different than mine, which means that you're wrong automatically, but, you know, whatever, I mean, you're allowed to have that opinion. That's the point of not just the episode, but the podcast is for Dana and I to tell you you're wrong anyway, so. <laughs> I love it. All right, Dana, we're going to throw the next one to you, because this is also a card that you have written an article about. Eternal Witness. And it should be in every single deck. I think we all agree we can just move on to the next one is going to be Sun Titan. Sun Titan. See, that's not the article <laughs> no. that I remember you writing. So Eternal Witness. Everyone knows it's two green and a colorless to put a 2-1 creature into play that returns a card from your graveyard to your hand. That's really, really, really useful. It's useful an awful lot. I just don't think it's useful as often as everyone seems to think it is. And why is that? Um, I think there's a combination of conditions that, well, I shouldn't say it's not useful. I think there's a combination of conditions that make other cards more useful in that slot. I think... In order to want to run Eternal Witness over something like Regrowth or something like Nostalgic Dreams, I think you need to have an additional way to abuse it being attached to a creature. I think that might be, maybe your deck is a Skull Clamp deck, or it's a Marin deck with a bunch of Sack Outlets. I think that's good enough. Or maybe it's just a creature-based attack deck where you're planning on winning with overruns. I think that's enough of a reason, too. I totally buy that. I think you might well have... Um, a blink deck going on if you're playing rune or something. Yeah, absolutely run that because you're going to be able to abuse it in that deck. But I think you need to understand why you're paying an extra mana over regrowth for a creature that realistically in commander is never, ever going to be a blocker of any note at all. Now, that's an interesting point there to say that it wouldn't matter as much as a chump blocker. That's kind of a contentious thing to say, as I'm sure you know. I would say there's been way more games that I've lost because I didn't have an extra mana free to do something I wanted to do that turn than there are games I've lost because I didn't have a 2-1 blocker on the ground. Hmm. All right. I appreciate the way that that was phrased. Why, thank you. I don't appreciate it. Matt, do you disagree? I, I mean, I just love playing creatures. I think in my Nikia deck where I can't cast regrowth and you're wrong because you're wrong. I, no, I, <laughs> and no, I, and that no, makes I, sense. That's I, enough I, of a reason, I think. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, there's a point to it. I think, I think if you had to pick between like regrowth and eternal witness, I, I would tend to lean towards having a chump blocker at worst isn't going to be the worst thing. But also, you're in green, so you're probably running some sort of overrun effects or something that you can turn it into a meaningful attacker as well, or you can convoke or anything like that. And that's just my deck building preferences. I like creatures to do more than one thing. So, I don't know. I. I could see it either way, but you pro if you want Eternal Witness, you probably want Regrowth anyways. Maybe, so maybe really it turns both. into, right. yeah. So, I mean, maybe it turns into, you know, if you play Eternal Witness, why aren't you also playing Regrowth? And that could be another number that we look at too, is how many Eternal Witness decks are also playing it. And that might be a, a better way to compare the cards. There are a few examples of commanders that aren't playing Eternal Witness at a very big popularity that I did find personally very interesting. One that jumped out to me was Arcades the Strategist. Eternal Witness is only showing up in 13% of Arcades decks, and for a green staple, I thought that was pretty interesting. But I think the point for Arcades is that, frankly, there's so much redundancy in that deck that Arcades doesn't need it at all. Arcades draws you cards whenever you cast creatures with Defender, which means 
means that you have a bunch of stuff, sort of like Edric, that is very low cost and will continue to chain through the deck over and over and over again. One of the things that's the most nasty about Arcades is that it runs a lot of cards that can blink your entire field because Arcades isn't a cast trigger, it's an enters the battlefield trigger. So when you ghost way or eerie interlude your entire board to save it from a board wipe, you also draw a bajillion cards and it's really, really disgusting. But even then, another thing to point out is that Arcades also has access to a bunch of cards like Dusk to Dawn that can revive all of the things that you need already. Yes, those cards can't revive you the spells, but that's where that density part comes in. The spells in the Arcades deck are already at a high enough density that Eternal Witness doesn't seem to be putting in as much work there, and running stuff, the other spell versions of those effects, seems to be more useful, as opposed to playing the Eternal Witness, which someone could potentially put under their Mimic Vat if you're not being careful. Yeah, I I, th I'm, I'm, I agree with you completely. I, I Again, this is like one of those Soul Ring things where if like you told me 99% of the decks that run it, running it for the right reasons, I would believe you. But I think there's there's a there's decks out there that meet that combination of of triggers where it 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 can't take advantage of that body because of this 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 and this or it can't take advantage of you know having it in the graveyard or it can't take advantage of attacking with it that I think they need to really take a long hard look at why they're paying an extra one mana for a, a blocker that is probably going to influence the game less often than having that extra mana free to utilize the spell they're bringing back in the first place. Yeah, it's just, as it, we've mentioned a few times before, it's a thing that needs to be done with intention. Make sure that you're not just running on autopilot. I like, I like the use of, I like you saying in, with the intention or, or examining your intent. I think that really sums it up very succinctly. So, as you mentioned, the next card on our list is the card Sun Titan, another really popular creature. This, I think, is like the third most popular creature overall, according to EDHREC, and that's really awesome, because it does revive tiny permanents, convert a mana cost three or less from your graveyard, and puts them right back into play. But I recently built a Tesa Karlov deck, and I realized that I don't want Sun Titan in there at all. It's something that I had in the first probably three drafts of the deck that I was building, but I didn't actually have too many targets for Sun Titan. And so I just wanted to put that on the list because Sun Titan, I think, is a really great white card that everyone thinks needs to go into all of the places because it's one of the most popular things and it can revive your stuff and that's great. But just make sure that you count the number of targets that you actually have for your Sun Titan because if you don't have too many, then it could be just a six mana creature with Vigilance that brings back like an Evolving Wilds or something. And I think you can be doing better at six mana. Yeah, I've never played Sun Titan in a deck before. I've just never had a deck that I thought it was good in. And I've seen a lot of bad Sun Titans. Like, we can talk about Eternal Witness, but I've not seen that many bad Eternal Witnesses. I've seen a lot of really ineffective Sun Titans before. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it's a card that, yes, it, it's very powerful, but it requires a little more intentional deck building, whereas Eternal Witness, you just get back whatever, you know, the best thing in your graveyard is, whereas Sun Titan being a little limited... Uh, granted, it is repeatable. There is that, but uh, you you have to be a little more specific about what you're putting in your deck and what you get in the graveyard. So I I do agree. It's probably a little too narrow to be the third most played creature in the format. And I think people are especially just hungry for it because it is technically a form of card advantage. You're not drawing cards, but it is returning stuff from your graveyard. 
repeatedly, which is really great. That's a way that white, which typically struggles with card advantage, can in fact get some card advantage. But I'm just not convinced that it belongs as one of the most popular creatures when it can end up in decks where there are a limited number of things that it can actually successfully revive. Yeah, I think the question that you need to ask when you're playing Sun Titan in a deck is, are the three mana cards that I'm recurring powerful enough to jump through the hoops to get them? Now, granted, you might be a total clever man or woman, uh, and a ter- and Sun Titan back your Eternal Witness to get back something else. Then you're, you, where's your regrowth now, Dana? Huh? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but but obviously that's magical Christmas land. And and another way you can look at it too is you you know you play your Sun Titan, you get something that costs three or less back, and basically you got a discounted Sun Titan. It only costs you sit you know three mana instead of six. There's that argument to be made. But yes, it, I think that enough people aren't being aware of what, you know, how they're building their deck to make it worth uh, that that ranking in the creatures for the format. Or even if enough people are being aware of it, just to remind yourself to be aware of it. Because I put it into the first couple drafts of a deck that I was building without actually thinking about it, because again, I was kind of on autopilot. I was under the impression that this was a staple. This was a really awesome creature. And that's definitely true. It is indeed a staple. And I think for good reason, I don't think that people were wrong to make that card popular, but it was just something that I needed to realize wasn't actually necessarily going to work in my particular deck. It kind of reminds me, what's the six mana green creature that runs and fetches a non-legendary creature with converted mana cost three or less from your deck and then puts it right into play. Do you guys know the one that I'm talking about? I do. From I was, Corset, I think. Oh my goodness. Uh, it's going to tick me off that I can't remember it right now. Woodland Bellower, that's the name of the card. Woodland Bellower currently shows up in, let's look this up, 5,720 decks. Compare that to Sun Titan, which is in 40,000 decks. I think that there's something kind of similar about those two cards. Granted, Sun Titan can get you any permanent with that mana cost back from your graveyard, which definitely makes it very versatile, but Woodland Bellower can get you a very big diversity of any low-cost creatures in your deck, like Fierce Empath or indeed Eternal Witness or something like that. But there's a really big contrast between their numbers. Woodland Bellower is in like almost kind of 6,000 compared to 40,000 with Sun Titan. And I think there's just a thing to note about that. So that's just something that I wanted to use to sort of compare about the value of Sun Titan, because sometimes it could be just a Woodland Bellower and the stats on that particular card aren't impressive and they're not as impressive for a reason, I guess. Anyway, this is all a long-winded way of saying to make sure that you have intention with those things. Again, if you don't have as many targets, then maybe the card isn't as stapley in your particular deck. But we can move on to the next card on our list. Well, the next card on our list is Reforge the Soul, and I think we could also probably lump Wheel of Fortune into this same category, even though it's much more expensive and a little bit more difficult to find. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, what, what do you guys think about wheels in general? Because I have thoughts. Uh, yeah, I think <laughs> I might have heard some of your extreme thoughts about wheels before. Generally, I totally understand the point behind cards like Reforge the Soul, especially in colors that struggle with card advantage. Reforge the Soul is an excellent way for, say, a mono-red Doretti deck to be able to fill its hand back up with cards. But I think I know what you're going to say. It's very dangerous to give your enemies that many resources, too. Yeah, I, I think... The decks that most want to use wheels, and, and there's obviously a lot of caveats here because things like Wheel of Fortune make you discard your hand. So if you're playing something that cares about the graveyard, that's probably that's oftentimes worth it. That that's an additional 
thing that the car does that actually helps you out. So there's a lot of factors here with wheels, but I, I think people think that they can just cast a wheel of fortune and get draw back up to seven. And that's really useful. And there's a lot of times that's not really useful. Like if you are ahead in the game, I don't care how many cards are in your hand. If you're leading and no one has responded to you, that's because they probably don't have a response. And giving them 21 new chances at responses is almost always a terrible, terrible idea, even if you're down to one card in hand. So I, I think that's the important key there, right, is that Reforge the Soul, people are running it so that they can have card advantage. But it's not card advantage if your opponents are drawing a bunch of cards too. Right. And I think there's times like... It doesn't necessarily make it a bad card. There are applications, obviously. Like, Doretti is a really great example. But you need to be conscious of the fact that you're running a card draw spell that isn't actually necessarily beneficial when you consider that you have three opponents. And I yeah, think, there, I, think there's, I think there's plenty of draw spells in general that have downside. Like, we talked about Brainstorm last week. Uh, how's there, there's downside. And yes, there's always corner cases to some, some of these effects. Like, you have Nekasar who loves wheels. You have... Uh, my Niv-Mizzet deck, I play Windfall and right. uh, Wheel of Fortune. And actually, I play Winds of Change as well. So wheel effects are good in certain decks, but you need to make sure that the upside you're getting doesn't outweigh the downside of giving everybody else new hands as well. Yeah. I think you mean that it does outweigh. But yes, yes. your point still yes. stands. Regardless of the particulars, I could be pedantic about that if I wanted to. But just making sure that your forms of card advantage are indeed advantage rather than something parallel. Or, to take Dana's metaphor, you have three opponents, but you could treat it as one opponent who just drew 21 cards. Yeah, I, I just think people need to really look closely at how often it's beneficial to cast those wheels. And obviously, like a Nekisar deck, okay, that's a whole different deal. Or obviously, if you are doing mass graveyard reanimation and you want everyone to fill their graveyard, that's obviously a really good spot for it too. So I'm not saying there aren't plenty of times wheels are really, really good because there definitely are, but be well aware of what exactly you're doing when you refill everybody's hand at the table and maybe put stuff in the graveyard for the other deck that's a reanimator deck when you're playing mono red who doesn't care about your graveyard. Like there's just, a, there's a Ooh. whole lot of variables there and you probably really need to think them through before instead of just running it because somebody told you wheels are good. Yeah, uh, the, a reanimator like me, I would definitely be excited when an opponent casts Reforge the Soul. I think that's a really, uh, that's a, a very key observation for sure. Uh, I think you've got some stuff to say about the next item on our list too, Dana. Counterspells. Why on earth would you not play counterspells when you can? I, I have blue decks with no counterspells. So have either of you two ever played blue with no counter magic? No. It's been a recent development, but yes. I, I have never played at least two or three counter spells, just in general. Even my Rafika the Many deck that I had years ago, I still played, uh, I think it was the hard counter spell and maybe a couple others. But I, I've, I don't think I've ever played a blue deck that did not have at least a couple. Well, I think you, you kind of hit on the head a little bit there, though. You were only running two or three. You were surgically using counter spells, I'm assuming in a logical way, to keep someone else from winning the game or to keep yourself from losing the game versus just assuming you need to counter things because that's how it works in other formats. I think you've got some, some backstory, some, some hard feelings to work through here. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, <laughs> that's personal experience. That, that is, trauma. that's a thing I think we see a lot in commander. I think I've seen it a lot over the years, not like a, a recent thing or even a local thing. There are lots of formats in magic where just countering a spell is a good play. Being able to hit someone's tempo, you're trading your card for their card, you're trading your mana 
for their mana. And usually you're training less of your mana for their mana. And you're also presumably removing a piece from some kind of a, of a machine they were attempting to assemble or some kind of play they were trying to make happen. That's almost always a really good trade in a whole lot of situations. And that's not necessarily true in Commander, where you're putting yourself down mana and down a card. And of course, you're hitting somebody else. But there's very often two, sometimes three other players sitting there who aren't losing anything at all. Right. And that goes back to the same basis for, you know, single target removal spells. Those are not necessarily advantage against a four player table as well, just like a path to exile or swords to plowshares, that kind of thing. I think what's important is to make sure that you analyze the function of the counterspell in your deck, and that's why it's been a recent development for me. Dana, I think you and I both shared this kind of moment recently where we had some type of creature-based deck that also happened to contain blue, and we realized that something like a heroic intervention or a Teferi's protection would actually end up being more useful than the counter magic that we were typically running, because the counter magic that we were running wasn't as a form of removal or necessarily a form of tempo, it was actually actually a form of protection for our entire board. And what we'd rather see happen, instead of using a counterspell on a Wrath of God, we'd rather heroic intervention a Wrath of God so that we're the only person who has anything remaining after their board wipe resolves. And that's been the most recent development for me, where I'm now playing spells that are going to protect my board as opposed to shut down something from another player because what their function is in the deck is as a form of protection and there are occasionally other forms of protection that I would rather have than a simple counterspell. As versatile as it happens to be, what I needed in those moments was something different. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that the, uh, the, the big thing about counterspells people sometimes don't understand is in Commander they're way more a scalpel than they are a sword like they are in other formats. They are an offensive weapon very frequently in other magic variants. And in Commander, they are very much more a really precise tool. Yeah, making sure that you're analyzing their function. You mentioned on, I think it was the previous cast, that Overwhelming Intellect, you run that card, and it's got a completely different function than the stuff that we've just been talking about here. So make sure that when you're running counterspells, you understand why, because there could be other forms of, if you're using them for removal, there could be other cards like removal. If you're using them for protection, there could be other forms of protection that are maybe a bit more important. Yeah. All right, we've got one last thing on our list. Matt, I'm going to let you take this one. So you're going to let me take over the three mana ramp effects, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems that you, Mr. Selesnia, would be all about three mana ramp, right? Definitely. Well, it's a point that came up last week, and we had a couple listeners actually point out something that was really solid that I don't think we covered enough, which was in a lot of decks, and, and Dana and I, we both had three mana commanders. So really... One of the reasons that we both kind of concluded was we would rather be doing our ramp at two because on turn three, we want to be casting our commanders. And that I obviously that's not just for us specifically, but I think three mana ramp or chromatic lantern, Kadama's reach, all those types of effects, I think they might be a little overrepresented than where they really should be. Yeah, I, I tend to agree as well. I, I think when you're talking Cultivate Kadama's Reach, you're talking Darksteel Ingot, you're talking Chromatic Lantern in two-color decks where the fixing is oftentimes not really that important, I think you just want to get your work done at turn two and move on with the game at turn three. So you'd rather be playing Felwar Stones, Cold Steel Hearts, Signets, things like that. Would you, for example, instead of playing like a Commander Sphere or a Chromatic Lantern, would you rather play a Rampant Growth? Yes, I would, for sure. 
And number one, it's also harder to remove lands. I, I think in order to justify a three mana slot for a ramp spell, it needs to do something special. I think Commander Sphere being able to be sacrificed for a draw spell, even if it's tapped, even after you've used it, even in the middle of somebody casting an instant speed removal spell of some sort, I think being able to just get your card back from that, that no matter what is worthwhile. I think in like a three or four color deck with really heavy pip costs, I think Chromatic Lantern probably pays for itself very frequently. I don't think Darksteel Ingot being indestructible does it. I don't think Manolith definitely does it. And man, I'm starting to turn a little bit on Kadama's Reach and Cultivate as well in that three mana slot. Not, 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 enti- really? not entirely. Even though they set up your next draw? Yeah, not entirely. I, I still do run them. But I would, I would definitely trade the, the, the land in hand if they printed, you know, two more variants on Farseek or two more variants on Rampant Growth. I would not be running Cultivate or Kadama's Reach anymore. I think an interesting point to raise is that we, we had mentioned this in the previous episode, and this also kind of inspired the show topic for today. None of us were running Cultivate or Kodama's Reach in any of the decks that we did on our previous episode with Reki History of Kamigawa, uh, Miri, Weatherlight Duelist, and Marin of Clan Neltoth. And all of us had different reasons for it. Matt preferred his ramp to be in the form of, for example, creatures because he could potentially power them up with an overwhelming stampede later. Dana, you preferred to have also probably creature ramp, but generally you didn't find that you were as hurting for creature ramp or any type of ramp actually for any type of ramp there because you were just cascading through your deck so quickly and for me i wanted my stuff to be in the form of creatures reviving them with marin we each had a reason why we weren't running like the most popular green spells that provide you with very necessary ramp and that was just very interesting again this is one of those point one percent of cases where maybe you don't need those particular spells even though they're amazing there are other things to pay attention to that synergize more directly with the deck that you're playing yeah and, and i think things like kadama's reach or cultivate too like i said it's all about intent if you're playing a five color deck and the fact that those spells can fix you two different ways you can grab the land and play you need this turn and you can grab the one of a different color that's going to solve your problem next turn and that's a whole different deal than it is in a you know a mono green deck or a two color Swaznia deck or something. Intent, that's, I come back to that word. Look at your deck particularly and see what role it's playing there because it's going to be different in a lot of different cases. Yeah, I am also not running, you know, a, uh, a lot of three mana ramp like Coalition Relic or I don't know if I have a Chromatic Lantern in my Edgar Markov list because that entire list is very low to the ground. And Dana, I expect that you're Edric Spymaster of Trest. That's a three mana commander who wants to play a bunch of really low drops Another three mana spell is probably as just as equivalent as a six mana spell in that particular deck. Yeah, because three, you just don't three need mana. It. Like, it might as well be twelve. Right, exactly. And another one that's coming to my mind right now. Let's see if I can look up numbers on this. Rune of the Hidden Realm. I want to see what Cultivate and Kodama's Reach are showing up in his deck. Forty-six percent and forty-two percent for Cultivate and Kodama's Reach in Rune of the Hidden Realm. And again, it's similar to Marin because he would rather have creatures that he can blink to get those effects, so he doesn't feel that he needs the spells. Obviously, you know, forty-six and forty-two is still pretty respectable, but compare that to the creatures that are actually finding the lands. Those are his top and signature cards. Those are showing up at like sixty percent or something. So there's definitely room there. You can probably do the Porque no los dos philosophy to it. They're great cards, but it again, is going to come back to that intent, and you just want to make sure that you are synergizing with your deck, and there are just exceptions to this rule is basically the point. There are sometimes staples aren't as staply in your specific deck for reasons that the commander synergizes with. 
a perfect a, a perfect finish. <laughs> I've got one last wrapping up question for you guys here, because what I worry about in us talking about this and us kind of debating it and seeing where we fall, because we do all fall in different spectrums, you know, some of us might feel more passionately about Soul Ring than others, some of us might feel a bit more passionately about Evolving Wilds or Cyclonic Rift than others, for example. Do you think that there are situations where people take this too far? The idea that, you know, they don't need to run staples in this deck for X or Y reason, because I want to make sure that we're not giving bad advice here. And given that we all have different opinions, it's possible that one of us is taking this idea too far, that we've made too many exceptions for staples that people should be playing. I never give bad advice. I'm offended <laughs> you would say such. <laughs> Okay, but really, do you think that there are situations where people take the, the staple idea too far? I do. Well, and, and I had a tweet a couple weeks ago where I just said, Brainstorm is the, it's not the draw spell everybody thinks it is. And I had so many people say, nope, it's a staple for a reason. I was like, is it though? What is, what is, because, what is the reason? Well, we've said several times on the podcast, Brainstorm locking yourself is a very real thing. Right. And I posted, you know, if you're trying to find a, like a, a very specific card... You have a 5% chance, basically, of finding it in Commander versus a 20% chance in Legacy or, or whatever. Most Commander decks, they're probably not running 10 or so shuffle effects, whether it's fetch lands or whatever. Um, I think if you are running that in Commander, it's a little more defensible. But the amount of times that I've seen players, and I've even done it myself, I will admit I, I've brainstorm locked myself. But the amount of times that somebody has cast Brainstorm because they think it's going to help get them out of a bad spot and all it does is just dig their grave even deeper, it it's far, far outweighed the times where somebody brainstorms, gets rid of two spells they're not going to be able to cast for three turns or more, they shuffle them away, and everything's peachy keen. I can probably count that on one hand, the amount of times I've seen that situation versus the countless times somebody has, well, I brainstormed and now I have all these bad spells that I can't really cast and I can't get rid of them because I don't have any fetch lands. So you basically time walk yourself and it's, it's, it's not, I I've said several times ponder should be the most played cantrip. If you're playing blue and you want a good draw spell to find land drops and people have said, well, what if I'm trying to find my last land drop, etc.? Why are you casting brainstorm at instant speed to find a land drop? You're not doing it on the other person's turn. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> so, I, I think Brainstorm, yes, it's very, very powerful. There are corner cases, and you can make corner cases for Niv-Mizzet or Spellslinger decks, anything like that. The downside is something that should not be ignored, and I think too many people do that. So that's not exactly what I meant <laughs> when I asked the question. Well, well you got um, me but on I my do soapbox. Appreciate you got me. Yeah, I do appreciate we're going to have to start calling you instead of Matt Valduk Morgan. We're going to have to start calling you Matt the Brainstorm Hating Morgan. Uh, I don't know. It's a road that we tread before. But what I mean is sort of the, the opposite of that. Are there situations where people think that they don't need to run the staples, but it's to their own detriment rather than an example of another staple that isn't necessarily as good as people think? So an example that's coming to my mind, I've seen a player who ran enchantment-based removal in their enchantress deck. I think it was Tuvasa or something. And rather than play things like Beast Within or Reality Shift or Pongify or Path to Exile, they preferred to run Imprison in the Moon and Song of the Dryads and uh, Darksteel Mutation. And those are all great. And getting the enchantress triggers was excellent in that deck. But I still think that those particular decks warranted having other forms of classic removal because they're 
so efficient. That's kind of the thing that I'm trying to get at here. Do you think that there are situations like that where people take it too far? I think there's there's two axes there. There's there's the people that do that, but they're well aware that it's not an optimal build, but they want to play an enchantress deck using only enchantments and not using instant sorceries for removal. Um, so I think there's that level. I mentioned Soul Ring in my enchantress deck. Would that deck be better with Soul Ring? In right. it? Absolutely. But I'm not doing that. I've made that decision. That's what that deck is thematically doing. I'm not running it. I think there's plenty of those people. I, th I think the ones that are, are, are mistaken are the ones that would then make an argument. Well, Soul Ring isn't good in my Enchantress deck because, because why? Yes, okay, you're occasionally going to draw a card off playing Market Festival or something. But the amount of times that that four mana Market Festival is better than that one mana soul ring that makes you two mana in response that you can cast on turn one. That's not an argument you're going to make. That's going to be mathematically sound based on any amount of looking through your deck and looking. I mean, yes, occasionally it's going to work out that way, but the vast majority of the time it's not. So I think that's the situation I think you have people that are intentionally running cards or not running cards, but they know why they're doing it. And then there's those that just think they're being clever when they're not. I think another one that I've seen, and this I think almost happens as if by accident, is very aggressive decks forget to run Wrath Effects. Uh, you know, they're planning on just charging right out the gate and they'll just burn everyone down with their enormous creatures or something like that. And they forget that occasionally they'll mess up and they will not be able to land the heroic intervention at the right time and their huge board will be wiped away. And then if other people amass a huge board presence, since they thought that they were the aggro, they didn't pack enough removal, especially mass removal, to deal with everything else that's happening. That's something that I've seen just folks sometimes forget as well. So that's kind of another example of the situation that I'm talking about there where people maybe take it too far and they forget to include the staples or maybe it's intentional, I'm not sure. But it could be to their own detriment because those staples are, again, staples for a reason. I mean, I'm probably guilty of it at situations. There's probably staples out there that are really heavily played cards. Animate Dead pops into mind. Animate Dead's a really, really good card that almost always generates you value compared to the amount of, compared to the amount of mana you spend to cast it. And I have it in none of, none of my decks. I just don't run it because I, I don't tend to do a lot of recursive stuff, or if I do, it's baked into the deck where I don't need an animate dead. But it's also a card that's kind of considered, quote-unquote, a staple in black. And so I'm like, I, 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 there's probably some hipster stuff going on there with me mentally where I don't run it in decks where, again, mathematically, it probably would be advantageous to do so. So I'm sure there are situations where I do that. It's not with a soul ring or with a source of plowshares or a really obvious card. I guarantee there's a few things out there where a card was like just generically good and I'm not running it, even though it might be better served to do so. Yeah, makes sense to me. Alrighty, we are going to wrap up the show with our classic segment, Challenging the Stats. We've talked a lot about some of the cards that we maybe challenged a few things here, there, corner cases, but let's move on to stuff that isn't necessarily just corner cases. Let's talk about the cards that are seeing too much play sort of generally and definitely shouldn't see play in that many decks, even not considering those corner cases or cards that aren't seeing enough play at all in the first place. Matt, do you mind starting us off? I sure can. So I dogged on a blue card, so I'll build up a blue card this time. Baleful Strix actually has impressed me a great deal lately. I know that on Commanderin, I think it was Sean, he talked about how Baleful Strix just does everything that he wants to. It's it's a death touch flying blocker. It draws you a card. You can attack and it, it's 
people don't really want to block it. And it's only two mana. It's just a very good, efficient card. The fact that it cantrips is is pretty nifty. We've talked about Eternal Witness. You know, it's not a consequential blocker. Uh, Death Touch is. So even if somebody tramples over for five or six damage, getting rid of their biggest creature is is it's a pretty mentionable effect. Uh, it's only showing up in 15% of all Demir eligible decks. Uh, I think that probably should be a little bit higher just because a creature that draws you a card for two mana, that's that's pretty solid. So when you tack on Flying and Death Touch, uh, it gets a lot of playing Legacy for the same reason. just a very efficient, it's a very good blocker, and I think more people probably should take a second look at it. That is very, wow, 15% seems really low. I would have expected it to be in way more Demir decks, so I super agree with your challenge. Love it. I am also going to be talking about a two-mana artifact, and that is the card Crook of Condemnation. Many times on the cast, we've mentioned, to my own personal dissatisfaction, I suppose, because I'm a necromancer, but we've mentioned that people need to run graveyard hate, and the card Relic of Progenitus has come up a whole lot. Relic of Progenitus can exile all graveyards, and it even replaces itself, which is really great. It shows up in 5,850 decks. Really cool card. But it also has some price fluctuations going on there, and since we do want to keep our eye on the budget, I think that it's also wise to take a look at some other examples that would be good fodder for it too. Crook of Condemnation is a great example. So it's a two-mana artifact. You can pay one and tap it to exile target card from a graveyard, or you can pay one and exile it to exile all cards from graveyards. This thing's like five cents or 10 cents or a quarter or whatever. Super budget pick. And man, as a necromancer myself, I am terrified of both of those abilities. Because unlike Relic, it lets you actually choose a card in a graveyard. Relic lets me choose the card that I want to exile, but with Crook of Condemnation, you can choose which card you want to exile. So if I try to animate dead something, you can say nope. And it can also, whenever you need it, just exile all graveyards as well. It doesn't replace itself like Relic, but I don't particularly care. If I see Crook of Condemnation across the field, I am in a state of total dread because it is so good. And I think it needs to see play in way more than just 367 decks, especially if Relic is seeing play in nearly 6,000. So that is going to be my challenge for the week. That is really good. And I like that you can use its single target ability and then use its second ability still because the second ability doesn't require you to tap it. Yeah, exactly. This thing is really nasty. If it stays in play for a couple of turns, just incidentally knocking out specific cards or always holding up one mana to either get rid of all graveyards if I play Rise of the Dark Realms or getting rid of a single creature that I try to target, it's just sort of an artifact version of scavenging ooze, only instead of the ooze getting it to be bigger, it also has a safety clause of completely ruining my day. So I think that that's a really good pick. I want people to play it even though I don't want people to play it. <laughs> exactly. All right, Dana, let's move on to you. What is your challenge? My challenge is Artificer's Epiphany. It is two and a blue, so three mana. For an instant speed, draw two cards, and if you control no artifacts, discard a card. It's in less than 500 decks on EDH Rec right now, and it should be in more. There's a whole lot of blue artifact-centric commanders that are going to just never have to discard things. And this is ignoring the fact that some decks actually want the discard. But even ignoring that, there's a lot of decks where it's just going to be an instant speed, three mana, draw two. And a lot of those blue artifact commanders, things like Brea, things like Sidri, they have activated abilities, uh, Muzio as well, that take mana. So you're either holding mana for a counterspell or you're holding mana to see if you want to use those instant speed abilities. 
And this also plays in nicely because it's instant speed. If you don't need to do any of those things, you can just draw two cards for three mana and not have to pitch anything. I don't think it's a great spell, but I think there's, there's a niche there where you want those kind of tiny, sneaky draw spells that you can use to get just a little bit ahead without having to spend too many, too many resources. You can do it early game. You can do it when you haven't used the mana on something else. I think it should be in way more than 468 decks. I think that's, that's good. I, I've been tempted to put it in a couple decks of, of my own, so I definitely get it. I like the pick. I like all of our picks this week. This is pretty darn cool. I think it's time for us to wrap up the show, but do you guys have any other last minute things that you want to acknowledge about the staples and the times maybe not to play them? I already ranted about brainstorm, so I think we're good. Yeah, I mean, it, we we touched on it before. I, I really like using the word intent. I think just know why the cards are in your deck and know why all of them are there and give them a look. And I think that's easy to say because there's been plenty of times in the past when I've been struggling to find a hole in a deck to add a new card. And I've looked at it for, you know, a week and a half and not found what I wanted to cut. And then all of a sudden realized, well, this, this card that's in here hasn't done anything to me for six months. And it's only in there because of a previous piece that I've since taken out. Like sometimes it's tough to actually register you just get in that mindset that this card is good in my deck or this card is good because it's a staple. And it's really, it's sometimes really difficult to shake that. So I, it, I just keep looking at it because that's a easy trap for anybody to fall into. Know why you're running the cards that you're running in your deck. Right. Even if the takeaway that we had from this particular episode, even if all we did was talk about all of these staples and we found that actually, yes, every deck does want to play Soul Ring. Even if that's the case, I think it's useful to have conversations about them just to make sure that you're doing it the right way as opposed to being stuck in a rut of the way that you always think. It's good to challenge our preconceived notions. That's just a useful conversation to have. So regardless of the takeaway that we have here, maybe sometimes you think that Cyclonic Rift is overplayed in like a Yidris deck, or maybe you think that I'm totally crazy for suggesting it. That's fine, but we just need to make sure that we continue to have conversations about that because that's how we make sure that we're continuing to do things the right way. And with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemist55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana? You can find me on the Twitterbirds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me once a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. Follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast too. This cast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can. From Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'd love to hear from you guys what you think. If there are places where staples aren't as necessary, we'd love to hear your thoughts. And we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. It's just like, oh no, 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 no. Right, that's, that's oh, no. I mean, I guess that movie's probably 15 years old now, but yeah, not that old. at least. It's it's probably twenty five years. Is old. it really that old? I probably I guess it's probably late nineties. Yeah, I guess I can just look that up because I have the entire internet at my fingertips. It is amazing how often we still guess about things when like the information is literally an inch away from our faces.
1998. It's 21 years old. Old The movie Godzilla is old enough to drink. Yeah, yeah. And it would need to. (laughs) There's our intro. There's our real intro. (laughs) There we go.